get them to leave was the biggest challenge. Now, to get them to buy in and then go to college and be one of the first people probably in their probably in their family to go mm-hmm. to school mm-hmm. and leave their family mm-hmm. to go somewhere else is not the Native American culture's way, man. I'm just telling you. That's mm-hmm. why most of the people stay on the reservation and they stay close-knit and they work and live and eat and sleep and marry and stay there. But to get them to leave and come out and see it, it was a huge challenge. But now I think people are starting to see that are that we're not doing it to take them away. We're doing that to educate them so when they go back to the reservation, they can help our people out more and more. Welcome to the Fred Opie Show, where you learn how to make a difference on and off the field. I'm your host, Fred Opie, a former Syracuse University and U.S. National Team athlete turned historian. I use the oral histories of my guests to unpack strategies to make a positive impact in this world. Today on the Fred Opie Show, an interview with IMG lacrosse coach Mark Burnham. Mark was a college teammate of mine at Syracuse University. He attended Henniker High School where he won a New York State championship with a team that had several players who had never played lacrosse before. That program at Henniker High School had been existing for only four years, yet it went to go on and defeat one of the best West Genesee High School teams of all times before going on and beating one of the best Yorktown High School team of all times. Mark is also the head lacrosse coach for the Iroquois national team. We'll talk about his high school experience, his experience at IMG Academy in Florida, and what it's like to be the head lacrosse coach for the Iroquois national team. That's today on the Fred Opie Show. Mark Burnham. Your high school team won the New York State Championship in 1980. And what I found so interesting is the fact that maybe four, I think they were all African-Americans, had never played before. How that team won the New York State Championship. You beat a West Jenny team that was off the chart as well. So tell me about that. We were basically a football team. Football at Henniger High School was very well known. Most of our guys from that school in that year were just used to winning at whatever sport they played in. So I think you just had an accumulation of maybe... 25 or 30 good athletes played on a team and uh, you know it was our it was our only our fourth year of existence for even being a lacrosse team i think we started in 75 and by 1980 um you know we were in the state championship we were kind of a cinderella team they said the team was you know african-american uh half, probably half and half half white uh, guys and really good friends and we all played sports together and we grew up together and they just bought in and Coach Acey, who did such a great job with everything uh, as far as getting kids prepared and, you know, mentally prepared, we just went on from football of being 13-1 and one or 12-1 and one to right to lacrosse and, you know, no better group of athletes. But that was probably the most athletic group of guys I ever played with in any sport. You know, uh, Jeff Keck was one of our coaches, Tom Acey and Derek Brower, and, uh, you know, we had, um, we had Tom McDonald, who had just graduated from Hobart, and Jeff Keck was the JV coach, and they all bought in. Sounds like you weren't surprised by the team's success. That group, I'm telling you, if you look back at those and, and ask anybody who played it against us, like Steve Bevel said, he goes, Mark, that was just a bunch of freak athletes that just ran people off the field and just refused to lose. I think that was mainly the reason why we did so well. I mean, we had probably three or four guys go D1 from the team, you know, my year. I just thought we had a couple pretty decent lacrosse players and a ton of great athletes. Somebody who has started a team in an area 
where there hasn't been lacrosse. There's been great football, great wrestling, great basketball. In today's lacrosse world, could this be done again if you had great athletes? Or are we talking about something that has cannot be repeated? That's a good question. With the, with the specialized stuff that goes on now, when you get the, the different style of play you have then, it can't be repeated because of a lot of the rules that have all changed. Back then, Fred, as you know, uh, you could pretty well crush people. There was no defensive players, defenseless players. And that style of play fit right into our game. And, and I think teams got very, very nervous around us when, we, when they played <laughs> us because of the fact that we were so physical. And we were a football team. African-Americans, Lamar Williams, Timmy Clark, uh, Maurice Jackson, Jerome Hall, Horace Allen. These guys all played football and were either running backs, defensive backs, uh, linebackers, or free safeties. And all those positions are skilled positions, and they all could hit pretty well. Play against Henniger, they're going against an all-African-American midfield. When we played, you could crush people running up the middle. You know, the, the game has changed a lot, and it's evolved, and it's better for the game, I guess. And But back then, just being that physical and, and that, you know, probably, I guess, the demand that was put on us is, hey, guys, you can do this if you all play together. And Coach AC was great at doing something like that and getting people to play and believe. And after you believe, it's hard to stop a bunch of great athletes that just refuse to lose. You were recruited, went up, went on, went on to play at Syracuse, and won a national championship as one of the, as the first team at Syracuse to do that. But you have some younger brothers who were phenomenal players. I wondered what role did you play in their recruiting process and decision on what schools they were going to go visit. They hung around the team. They eat. They breathe lacrosse. Their older brother, like the siblings, you know, usually like now the the, the real good sibling is usually the youngest one because. He was always playing with older, stronger, faster kids in the backyard. And they, they, they were exposed to the game at an early age. And, and I was the oldest in my family. My parents had divorced early. I was, I think, 12 or so or 10 or 12 in there. So I didn't really have a father figure to, to look to. I really stepped into that role at an early age to make sure my brothers followed and did what I did. So I think those guys got a lot more exposure. I think these kids were probably 8, 10, 12 at the time being at Henniger uh, football and lacrosse games, and they were always our ball boys. And I made sure of that, and I even asked Coach Simmons at a time. They used to travel with us on uh, road trips, but they were always around the game. My one brother went to Loyola and did very well. My brother Scott went to Cornell. You know, to have three Division One players and then go on to the national team, I think that was the first time three brothers or three siblings had ever played on a national team at the time. And then I know the Pauls did it, and then the Thompsons have now done it, but quite an achievement. I was really proud to be, you know, their older brother. I think they were exposed to it at such an early age that it really, really helped develop them and have a stick in their hands. And they weren't just around kids in the neighborhood. They were around, like, pros and guys from the reservation and guys that were really good in college. And, you know, they, they knew that there was a, a, a status quo kind of, this is what we got to be to be like our brother. I think it helped them and helped develop them. And now they have boys that are, Actually playing for me, my my, my wow. nephew's player, one made All American last year, and they're gone on. They're going to be Division One players at Drexel and uh, Penn. I think when you have that family atmosphere, which you guys all know, lacrosse is such a big part of it. They just tend to do what you do, and the siblings just get better and better and better as the, as it grows up the chain. And now it's a lacrosse family, and you guys know what happens after that. The show will be right back. 
If you like what you hear on the show, share a link on Facebook or Twitter or send the link to a friend. If you have a question you want us to address on the show, write me at fdopie at gmail.com. You can find our show archive, blog, suggested reading, and more at fredopie.com. Now back to the show. Mark, you mentioned uh, playing on a national team. You played on the Iroquois national team. Emmett Printup, one of our teammates from Syracuse. It's you. It's Travis Solomon, this is the first year for Iroquois national team. Yep. And I'll never forget this. I go to meet Oren Lyons, another Syracuse All-American and leader mm-hmm. of the Iroquois nation. And I say to him, he says, come up and visit me in his room at his hotel. So I come up and visit, me, visit him and I sit down and he looks at me and he says, again, folks, context. This guy played with Roy Simmons Jr., Hall of Famer, played with Jim Brown, Hall of Famer, African-American. And he says to me, do you, he says, Fred, do you know what this is about? No. He pulled out the passport and he said, this is about establishing sovereignty for us as a people. What did that team mean to you? Were you conscious of all that was involved in creating that Iroquois national team in 1990? Absolutely, and and just so you know, to go back a few years, uh, Fred, um, what we did was, you know, when we had won the national championship in 83, but I think that's when the run and gun started, and fast lacrosse went from control to just straight-up track meet, man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but, but getting back to your uh, question about about sovereignty and that, you know, Oren had come to me and say, listen, Red, we're trying to get Iroquois recognized as a nation. And it's our game, and they denied us. And I, I said, well, what can I do or what can we do? And we tried to get in the 86 World Games, and I had just been out of, you know, out of college a year or so. Mm-hmm. He goes, we got to get people to buy in and finally recognize us, which is going to be the hugest importance of our existence because of the fact that this is our game. We're trying to share it with everybody, but they're not recognized as a nation. They're recognized us as a team. So mm-hmm. he goes, we're not going to travel on a U.S. passport. We're not going to travel on a Canadian passport. We're going to make our own passport. We're going to travel on it. And if they don't accept it, we're not going to go. And you, as you know, 2010, that was some of the issues, and we didn't go, which was a travesty to me because how can you deny a team that you've already issued passports to and recognized and then go and deny them? Like, all of a sudden, we were wiped out. We're not in existence anymore. You, you honored it before. It was England, same place that we went in 90, or Australia, and then uh, – so, so two years of being there in 90 or 94, um, I forgot the years. Uh, you know, 90, yeah. passport issued, mm-hmm. and Oren comes to me, and we get denied for the 86 uh, World Games. And he says, Fred, he goes, i got to get this thing done for 90. He actually went to the United Nations and uh, or the, the meetings, and he called us all like that for some morning. They came back, and he said, we just recognize you as a nation. We're going to let you in the World Games. And he called me like 3 in the morning, I to his son, obviously, who was a great player, Rex Lyons. Mm-hmm. I guess he had gone with him. And he said, "He goes, Red. We've, we've." He, he said, "We finally made it." And when he said that, you know, I almost brought tears to my eyes. And then he said, "I want you to captain this team." And I was the captain after in the next five World Games. And you know, now I'm the head, head coach of the national team, so there couldn't be a greater honor. But man, oh man, since 1986, Fred, until now, mm. you know, some 20 years later, you know, 30 years from now we might be not alive and that'll be history and Mm. and like you said what did it mean to me it was was a great great time in our, our our history of our program as well as our people 
please email me at fdopie at gmail.com and share your questions. I will repeat them on the show so people get the benefit of your question and my response. Invite me to speak and host the Fred Opie Show at your school, club team, or camp by emailing me at fdopie at gmail.com. Hosting a show is a great way for the oldest students who are interviewed to pass on positive peer pressure to younger students. And during the Q&A with the audience, I share a perspective I wish I had when I was younger. Now back to the show. Mark, tell me about um, recruiting, assessing players from all the different nations as the head coach of the Iroquois national team. We represent all indigenous people for Iroquois Nation. The Iroquois Nationals made up of six nations. You want to look at how many native tribes, indigenous tribes there are in the world, like, say, Canada, USA, Brazil, uh, Australia, wherever. That would be a huge, huge, huge pool to pick from. Mm -hmm. No, we don't have that huge pool. People just think because you're a Native American, you can travel for the Iroquois Nationals. That is not true. We have six nations that we, we work from. Someone told me, I think, five or 600 native tribes in the U.S. alone. We're only picking from six. The U.S. is picking from every nationality. It can be anybody that lives in the U.S.A., as opposed to how many people are on six nations, three non-passport players. I got to go and pick from uh, probably 130 people mm-hmm. instead of 130,000 wow. Okay, lacrosse mm-hmm. players across the U.S.A. So what we do is we put it out, kind of like we're doing now. Hey, there's going to be a trial for the national team. Uh, we try to do it at different uh, reserves out there, and different nations will hold host to it. And we go there, and whoever shows up, Fred, that's all we get to pick from. It's not like I go, Fred, you're invited, and they do every single thing they possibly can to be on that team. Some guys are working. Some guys are in family. Some guys are working, you know, as iron workers. They're, they're traveling. They live in California. They can't take two or three weeks off. They can't even take a weekend off because their families are, you know, depending on the work and and, and, and be the breadwinner. So when we get these people, now after you narrow down after probably two tryouts, that 60 of them are only, we're talking about world-class players now. We're not just talking about a lacrosse team. We're talking about people that are going to come from, you know, to go play against the best guys in the world that are still currently playing or just got out of college or been playing four-time D1 All-American. We're talking about a guy maybe never even went to college. He just barely finished high school. We're talking about guys who train on the weekend, we're talking about a guy who just got off climbing an iron and just went down and put a cross stick in his hand, and he's going to go trial for a, a, a national team. So in order for us to pick a team, per mm-hmm. se, we, we face tons and tons and tons of challenges. Just to get together to have the trial is almost impossible because of the walk of life we, we lead and where people live. It's, it's insane. If you went and picked our team, most of them play pro. Mm-hmm. Well, some of them play D1, and some of them play college, and some play junior college. Mm-hmm. And then some of them, you know, are just can't do it because they can't leave their family for two to three weeks to go over to Israel. You Nobody see. knows that, Fred. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you asked that question because that's the issue, and always has been, Fred, since I've been involved with that team since 1986. How many guys can you get to buy in, and who can get the time off, and who do we have to choose from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People think, cause, oh, yeah, I saw this one guy, he's a Native American, he's well, he's not from our nation. He's not an Iroquois. We only get three non-passport players. And by that, I mean you can be from any nation. You have to prove that you have the lineage. You have to have the paperwork. It's not just like you live in the USA and your mom was uh, 
from Israel, okay, you gotta be you gotta be on a roll and roll member of a tribe. You gotta get stuff from the chiefs where where you live. I mean, there's quantum bloodlines that's involved. It's like you better we make sure our paperwork is good. And then to, to deny us to go, we're probably closer monitored in house than any other country that picks a team. Hmm. Yet they they fail to recognize it and want to keep us out. As a coach at IMG Academy and as a coach at Iroquois National Team, I'm sure you come across Native American young men. How do you counsel them when they're making their decisions about what schools to do official visits? How's life going to be on campus, particularly if a kid grew up on the res and now he's going into mainstream, lily white academic situation? How do you advise these kids about what life is going to be like when you leave and go to one of these colleges? It's a great question. Um, the worst ghetto in the United States is on, a, is on a native reservation that's out west. That's the worst ghetto in the U.S. that you'll ever travel to. People say, well, man, the kid finally got a chance to get out of the ghetto. Well, that ghetto is, a, is in a bunch of places. You know, growing up when you don't have electricity or water or the, or the, the bare essentials to live, now, when you bring them down to a place like IMG or, or show them something off the reservation, they don't want to leave family because we're such a tight knit. And it's something new, and they've always been warned, you know, hey, it's going to be different out there, and, you know, it's, 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 not a, it's, not, it's not the native world you're used to. Just getting them to buy in and see it and change their culture, which we're not trying to do. We're not trying to change any culture. We're trying to add to their culture so that they can educate the kids, when they come back, kind of like the Thompsons have done and you know, Marshall Abrams and all the others before them that went and left the reservation, but they always come back, right? They always come back, and they do well for the people, and they show people that, you know what, it's not a bad thing to go off, to learn, to educate yourself with whatever education you may be, but stay with your culture, keep your language, keep the stuff that's been kind of taken away over the years, and, you know, obviously, if you know history, mm-hmm. it was tried to uh, be eliminated by it. Just same with the African-Americans and uh, anyone else who's come here as an immigrant and struggled and, you know, to fight the government. So those kids, to get them down here, my hardest challenge was to get, like, guys to, to leave the reservation to come down here, you know, hundreds and thousands of miles away from their families and just get them to be here and to keep them here and then to get them on to the next step. The hardest part was get them to leave, and, and, and I always was told by a few different people, we can't do it with one guy. we got to do it with three to four. Mm. And that's what I've done since I've come to IMG, is try to get with Bill Schatz, who was here, our former director, and say, Billy, I, I can't just send one guy to you. My nephew was one of them, Colin Lyons, who's at uh, Albany right now. Doing really well, and Scotty Marr was a great coach there, obviously, and one of our coaches on our staff calls me up with that news of two of our guys that were going to be probably on that team or had a really good chance of making it, pull their knee out. He was one of the first kids to leave that reservation, along with the Hogan Anacote, who obviously you guys know he's done really well and had a hell of a few games in a row here and is a freshman. And to get them to leave was the biggest challenge. Now, to get them to buy in and then go to college and be one of the first people probably in their probably in their family to go mm-hmm. to school mm-hmm. and leave their family mm-hmm. to go somewhere else is not the Native American culture's way, man. I'm just telling you. That's mm-hmm. why most of the people stay on the reservation and they stay close-knit and they work and live and eat and sleep and marry and stay there. But to get them to leave and come out and see it, it was a huge challenge. But now I think people are starting to see it. 
that are that we're not doing it to take them away. We're doing that to educate them so when they go back to the reservation, they can help our people out more and more. Uh, you know, I think what you say is so important. I don't people don't necessarily know unless they've walked in your shoes what it's like to be the only one there. And often teammates, they're not doing things to be insensitive. They're just clueless. I know there were a number of times when Tino said, let's go here and let's go Same there. In your case, Fred, right? Yeah, you know. With, I played with African-American players before they even wanted to play lacrosse in yeah. the 80s and the 70s. Yeah. Okay, they did. Jim Brown days, you know yeah. what I mean? They took – I have a player right now, we just played a game. He's still – people are still being prejudiced saying stuff to him. It just happened in a game we just played in. Yeah. It's something to the kids who are here. You know, the word – you know, the word the words that are thrown around, I'm yeah. not even going to say them. Yeah. And on the Native side and the, the African-American side, it's just sickening. People don't get it. And I had to have that talk with one of our African-American players literally yesterday, Fred. And he said, I know where you're coming from, man. I was a white kid that stayed around the reservation. I was. I don't look like a native. I have red hair. You take a look at the picture of the Iroquois Nationals. There's everyone with dark hair and then a redhead sitting in the middle. So, <laughs> it, it, you know, I, I dealt with it. You dealt with it. it. It's stuff we dealt with. And I told this kid, you don't realize the breakthrough. He's the first African American to be at IMG on lacrosse. Mm-hmm. And I said, you should feel proud because you just made history and you're the first. I said, don't feel that people. That nobody owes anybody anything. But here's what I owe you. I owe you an accomplishment for saying you left your area to do something different and become a, I guess a uh, a pioneer. And yeah. that's what we're that's what this country is built on being a pioneer. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend. Share the show on Facebook and Twitter or send them to our website at fredopi.com. Mark, tell people what is IMG Academy. I mean, IMG Academy is a 600-acre facility in Bradenton, Florida. It's well-known for its sports and training. Right now, the Major League Baseball guys are here training right now, all the free agents pro international track people out on our track as we speak. Uh, NFL Combine's held here. It was known as a tennis academy back in the day. Now it's, now it's grown into a sports academy with a boarding school. Kids are going here to train at the highest level, hopefully become D1 athletes. 99% of the kids that graduate go on to play college sports. The other one goes on to play pro. I mean, we have four Ivy League kids this year, three last year, a bunch mm. of NESCAT kids. Apparently, they must be doing something right because those kids are getting into these top-level schools. They go to school 7.30 to 12.30. Then they go to APD class instead of a, an art class, which we do have art classes here. They'll have a mental fitness class. They'll go to, instead of a gym class, they'll go to speed and agility training and weightlifting. And then they'll go to practice just like that. So instead of having your electives in the afternoon, you'll go to those type of classes, which will be sports performance-oriented. And then they'll go lift weights, and then they'll come out and go to practice and go back home and go to study hall. And Our football team was one or two in the nation the last two years. Our basketball team was in the top two in the nation. Our lacrosse team was in the top five in the nation. And our facilities are second to none. If anyone's ever seen this thing, go online and look at it. Do you want to go to school without student loans? Need an after-graduation five-year plan? 
Are you interested in increasing your income and creative outlets? Do you have a plan to give, save, and spend more? My new book, Start With Your Gift. Understand and monetize it while serving others with it. It's the best book I know out there for accomplishing these goals. If you got a kid who was like me, a big time lacrosse junkie, have him read the book. It's a lacrosse memoir slash career advice. It will save you a lot of headaches in the future and your child, male or female. If you know a kid who's into hockey, basketball, whatever the sport is, it's a good book for a kid like that. It's appropriate for somebody who is 14 to 44. If you have kids or grandkids and you want to make a difference in their life, purchase them a copy of Start With Your Gift. It's available in Kindle and paperback, and you can get it on Amazon.com. I wrote a book called Start With Your Gift that helped people understand where they should channel their gifts into their career so that their career feels more like a vacation than a vocation. How do you describe your gift? Is it what you just said? You can teach kids that family first lesson and integrity. And if you can teach that, if I can show you and, and teach you how that works and how that adheres to your life, makes you go to the next level, probably that's the most important gift I give to these kids. I think I had a great mentor. No better speaker in the world, no better person than the Roy Simmons, and I think Tom Macy was right around that uh, level as well. Not having that father in my life, I kind of flew to those guys and listened to their words of wisdom, and they taught you integrity. You know, never give up attitude. And I think I maybe was instilled with that little bit by my mom, you know, just growing up, you know, a, a woman with four kids and on her own, and we struggled our whole life. Teach somebody and then kind of give them back to where, where I got, you know, such critically trained when I was younger. If you could have a superpower, which one would you want and why? Oh, man, a superpower. What would I have? You know, my superpower to me, I already have that superpower. I'm able to relate to kids and get them to the next level and really, really make a difference in their life. If you could have dinner (laughs) with three people, doesn't matter if they're dead or alive, what three people would you want to have dinner with and why? That's a tough one, Fred. Dead or alive, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. Never asked, been, never been asked that question. Uh, our Navy SEAL guy that, uh, you know, was at our school. You know, he wrote a book. Coach Simmons talks about him a bunch. He was on the TV show. Rourke Denver? Uh, yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, I, I didn't, I did have the pleasure of meeting him, and mm. he told me he heard stories about me as well, and I, and I know <laughs> his stories are true, and he was at a, he was at a different level, so mm-hmm. I would like to have dinner with him sometime. Uh, I would really like to sit down with Jim Brown and mm-hmm. uh, kind of talk to him and discuss him. Uh, you know, we met him, obviously, before our national championship, and mm-hmm. I met him a few times after that, but I never really got to sit down and have dinner with him because I thought he was a pioneer and, uh, and a real big role model. And uh, and I would think another guy who kind of I, I, I liked was like that was Muhammad Ali. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow, so those, those three people, and, you know, people – probably last but uh you know i my father was a boxer and you know i didn't really know him well because obviously left when i was young but taught us to box when we were little kids and uh you know i always liked muhammad ali and uh you know i just thought he was a pioneer and him you know doing what he did and most people don't believe in everything he did you know i, I believe in fighting for your country i also believe in believing what you believe hmm. so you know he was he, he People that struggled, Freddie, I guess that's what I'm saying, is people who struggled and 
overcame those struggles, uh, those are the people that uh, I'm attracted to. Hmm. Uh, by the way, I interviewed Rourke Denver, and that podcast will be coming up. I will be sure to send you a link. I think you'll enjoy it. Next question for you. Tell me, how have your eating habits and training habits changed since your freshman year at Syracuse? Since my freshman year at Syracuse? Yep. Oh, good God, Freddie. <laughs> so, uh, I'll tell you how they've changed in the last year. When you start to balloon up and you look in the mirror and you say, man, Mark Burnham used to be the best shaper guy in, on the team and one of the fastest guys I ever met and strongest guys. And then you look in the mirror and that guy disappeared and you can't find him. Well, guess what happens? You go, what is the reason? What is the cause? And being a coach, you come up with a game plan. And it's my freshman year when we were all wide open and literally could eat any single thing that's imaginable and drink as much as we wanted. Of course, water, nothing else. Um, that all changed. So I stopped doing the, I stopped drinking. I started eating healthy. I started looking at myself in the mirror and starting to try to fit stuff. I played at 190. I weigh 198 now, and I was about 248. Wow. And when I was playing, oh, yeah. And when I was playing uh, still at 248, still playing every weekend, I told myself, listen, this is the time when you either do it or you end up being somewhere else you don't like to be. And right now I like standing up straight and not laying down. So mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that's how mine have changed. I literally, like I, I spoke to you a little earlier before the show, I pretty much – I'm on a regiment, man. I'm going to eat this, 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 and this, and I'm not going to eat anything else, and I'm not drinking. Hmm. So I, I just got away from it. I just feel so much better. I, I look better. And, and mainly, who cares what you look like It's what you feel like? Hmm. You know, people say, well, you might you, you look better than you feel. I, I, I just think you feel better than you look. So, so, so are, you, are, you on the wagon, well. are you on the wagon when it comes to uh, alcohol, or you, you drink some sometime? What's your deal? Uh, well, let's put it this way. It's got to be like a celebration, okay. a funeral. It's got to be a special occasion, Fred. You know, listen, I love the taste of beer. I'm Native American. Not, not, not throwing out no cliches, but uh, I just like the taste of beer. Mm-hmm. And I really don't want to have headaches anymore. So i got to either give up the headaches or give up the beer. And I said, I'll give up the headaches. Wow. So I, I love the fact that people, you know, do um, engage in social drinking. I think it's great for them just not for me anymore i love the taste of it i love you know i like wine my grandmother's an italian and my family's italian i'm you know kind of what the the, the word was pretty funny back in the day was they they said well what are you you're half italian half uh, native american i said well i'm a wapaho okay so that's, that's my nationality so so uh so you know and people <laughs> people can't give me shit because i'm because i'm half italian but but you know just drinking alone and just doing it fred we know what it's done to some of our friends and yeah. some of the people we've been real close to. Yeah. There's no good from it. It's a sickness, you know, and, and I didn't want to go down that road. So I kind of just said, well, just give it up. And as you give up smoking or drinking or anything that's probably not good for your health, you just start to feel better and you believe in it. And all of a sudden it goes away. And the fact that you don't do it anymore, your body don't crave it. So mm-hmm. I just think, you know, Freddie, I mean, uh, you're in great shape. You look at our friends that are in great shape. They're not drinking every day. They're not eating like crazy every day. They're doing the stuff that's right for them, and we got to take care of ourselves because who knows what our bodies went through. And like we say, the next day we never know when the, the Lord upstairs is going to be calling us. So I want to do everything I can do on my side to help me not be in to that call till the time is there. All right, that's a good transition for this question. This is our last one, Mark. So the scenario is 
you find out that you have something that is terminal. After that, the doctor says, you need to get your house in order. And yep. I'm going to ask you to make a videotape in which you share three principles to live that have the greatest impact on the most people. Greatest impact on most people in three different points that you were sharing your videotape. And that videotape will be played at your funeral in your absence because you have passed. So people are coming to memorialize you the same way you went to memorialize the life of Greg Tarbell. And they're going to watch you share these three principles on a big screen. What are you going to say in those three principles? Well, the first thing I'm going to say in the beginning, don't remember the way I died, remember the way I lived. You want me in the foxhole with you. You want, you want him to be your teammate. You, you want him to coach your son. And don't forget your family. Because the, the, the issue for me is always going to be family. Family comes in different ways. It can come from, from a team. It can come from a workplace. It can come from sports. And I'm going to show pictures of my, uh, my children and uh, my, my classmates, my teammates, and, and people that I've met along my way. And forget about how he died. Just remember how he lived. Mark, that's powerful, man. That's Thank you for taking the time out. Mark, any final things you want to share with our listeners before we go? Do not stop listening to Fred Opie's show. <laughs> that is Mark Burnham, folks. We are signing off on Facebook Live. Look for this same interview. Edit it down to the 30-minute full of the best of this interview. And that's it for today for the Fred Opie Show. I am out. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. To hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. This show could have been brought to you by your company. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com. Start with a gift. Learn how to understand your gift, monetize it, and serve others with it. I wrote it for the younger version of me, who I describe as having sports on the brain and lots of pain. It'll be available online at fredopi.com.